This week on Making Contact. What came first, coin or the ledger, is unclear, but physical currency and a written tally of debts and payments have been the two primary forms of currency used throughout history. Today, physical cash is increasingly being replaced with cashless systems, including cryptocurrencies. On this episode of Making Contact, we'll hear from a blockchain researcher about an ethical framework she created for developers of blockchain. But first, we go to Athens, Greece, where Making Contact contributors Nikki Seth-Smith and Alyssa Moxley look at how some Greeks have been using cryptocurrencies since banking restrictions were imposed in 2015. The Greeks, they don't trust the Greek governments, not this one. All the governments, I think, from 2010 till today. So I think capital controls will stay here because if they remove capital controls, everyone will get their money to their beds (laughs) or to send it to other countries or somewhere else. It's not surprising that many Greeks have lost trust in both the state and the banks. The Greek economy has been in meltdown since 2010, when the country's huge public debt was revealed. Multiple bailouts have come at a cost, with Greeks suffering high unemployment, low wages, and terrible public services. They've lost control of their own finances, with the country's European creditors demanding higher taxes and putting huge pressure on the Greek banking system. We don't trust the Greek governments. Nothing can change because uh, you need to trust the governments uh, for keep your money in the banks or bring it back to Greece. Some are looking outside the national system for alternative ways of dealing with money. They have found an alternative, cryptocurrencies. These are forms of digital money that use cryptography for security. Because they're not issued by a central authority, they can exist outside government control. Taverna Agola seems at first like a typical Greek restaurant. In one of the western suburbs of Athens, it serves simple food like grilled meats and salads. It's a family restaurant. We rent about 21 years now with my father. But Nikos decided to shake things up a little. I use Bitcoin in the restaurant from 2013. We have a 10% discount for people who pay with Bitcoin. We don't have prices with Bitcoin in the price every day change. Bitcoin's value has increased more than 50 times since 2013. But it's not just about making a profit. Cryptocurrencies are maintained by crypto miners around the world. They're global. That means they remain above Greek law that might affect the banking system here. In fact, so far, no laws exist around their use in Greece. Holding digital currency gives Nikos a backup plan if something goes wrong with his Greek bank account. Since the crisis, Greeks have struggled to pay their taxes. Here, if you owe money to the state, the authorities are legally obliged to freeze your bank account. In the first half of 2017, roughly 900 bank accounts were frozen or their assets seized every day. In one day, when they see you have debt, and that debt have passed 30 days without paid, then they get in your bank accounts and froze it. And they don't care if you have to pay employees, if you have to pay rent, if you have to pay for your kids to feed them. They don't care for that. They just get it. I actually had this issue with my personal account. I owed to the tax authorities some charges. It was decided that they were unfair. So eventually I got them back but it was uh, something worth 6,000 euros. Suddenly one day I found my account frozen with no money in it. I actually, I couldn't even get 20 euros from the ADM. So at that time I had to convert Bitcoin into euros from my friends and work with cash. That's Dionysus Zendros, who came to the restaurant to have dinner. 
He's a blockchain PhD student at the University of Athens, looking at issues of trading and trust. So I got some Ethereum. You wanna you wanna bring the the check, please? Dionysus is paying with Ethereum, which is now, after Bitcoin, the second largest cryptocurrency in the world. It's the first time that the Taverna has taken another kind of crypto coin. Dionysus is familiar with lots of cryptocurrencies, and Nikos is happy to expand his trade. In Ethereum, yes, it's the first try. I have three confirmations. So Ethereum is much faster Ten than Bitcoin. Three. They compare digi-wallets and make sure the transaction has gone through. Oh, and that is here. Oh, gee. Thanks a lot. There are hundreds of cryptocurrencies, and new ones are created all the time. While they work in different ways, all make use of blockchain technology to avoid passing through a central bank. This puts power in the hands of the people who run and use them, rather than a national banking system. While speculation and investment have been driving forces of their growth, some people use them for practical reasons. For others, it's an ethical choice. So I would consider myself an anarchist, maybe you can say digital anarchist, because we seek to use technical means to achieve independence and allow each to govern their own self when it comes to money, when it comes to law. The core concept is decentralization. By decentralization, we mean permissionless systems, which is a system that anyone can join without the requirement of an authority to allow them to join the system. It's difficult to open an account here in the first place. Greek bureaucracy is notorious, but the economic crisis has made it even harder for many to meet the bank's requirements, especially as proof of employment is essential. Given that one in four Greeks are unemployed, many families share an account. So with decentralized cryptocurrencies and permissionless cryptocurrencies, the hope was that we could bank the unbanked and bring the ability to use money to anyone in the world, regardless of their government and regardless of the political will of the politicians and regardless of whether there are banks and institutions that wish to allow them in. And that means there, there can be no capital controls. There can be no haircuts on people's money because there are no banks and governments to take the money because there are no bank accounts. When Dionysus says haircuts, he's talking about the devaluation of savings. While this hasn't happened yet in Greece, the prospect is a constant fear. In nearby Cyprus, more than 4 billion euros were slashed from private savings accounts back in 2013 to meet the debt repayment demands of the country's European creditors. Only the wealthiest were targeted. Still, they lost more than a third of their holdings over and above 100,000 euros. They never got their money back. But even if I have some savings in euros and it's, it's sitting at a Greek bank and I don't know if it's ever going to be available to me, I don't know if it's even going to be haircut, right? Even if someone does have a bank account, there are serious restrictions on how they can use it. Capital controls have been in place since 2015 to stop people from taking large amounts of money out of the country. At first, account holders could take only 60 euros a day. Now it's relaxed a bit and users can withdraw or transfer up to 1,800 a month. It's still limiting though. Imagine if you're a Greek person with 20,000 euros in savings. If you wanted to move abroad, it might take you more than a year to bring that money with you. I think capital controls is a big issue. Bitcoin is one way and, and other coins, of course, are a way to move capital from Greece to elsewhere and also to pay for services. I personally know people that have done it. I've even helped people do it in a legal way. In my research team, we get paid in Bitcoin partially. 
So for conference reimbursements or for travel reimbursements, I personally get paid in Bitcoin. If you want to move money from Greece to Switzerland and back, just to do business, not even to save, this is a useful way to do it. Cryptocurrency can help ordinary people work around these issues. But what are people actually using crypto coins for in Greece? Dionysus uses forums to trade in cryptocurrencies with people online and face-to-face. -face. He has had some interesting encounters. I had put up ads that were selling and buying Bitcoin at almost market price, just because I want to involve more Greeks and to meet more people and to encourage people to use it. And this guy sends me a message on local Bitcoin and he says, oh, you know, I want to meet up. I don't have a phone and uh, my name is Nico. And that's all he said. I gave him the Bitcoin, he gives me the cash. And I try to like open up some conversation, like, why are you interested in Bitcoin? And he's like, that's none of your business. And he leaves. <laughs> because users don't have to give any personal identification, cryptocurrencies naturally attract people who want privacy. This can be legit or it can be criminal. In the summer of 2017, a Russian mastermind accused of laundering $4 billion worth of Bitcoin was arrested in a northern Greek village. He was involved in drug trafficking, fraud and identity theft, among other crimes. It's actually impossible to know who in Greece is using Bitcoin and for what purpose. But there is a community that seeks to use cryptocurrency within an ethical code, while still protecting its users' privacy. Faircoin was introduced here two years ago. Faircoin calls itself the cooperative version of Bitcoin. While 10% is on the open market, the coin is mainly used within the global fair co-op ecosystem, which aims to move towards a fairer world and economy. Achilleus is a beekeeper and a volunteer at the fair spot in Athens, a small shopfront on a main road in the anarchist district of Exarchia. People wander in off the street and he teaches them how to exchange euros for faircoin. So you need the address and an amount, either in euro or in fair coin. For this, you use the camera. You just point at the QR, yes. If they want, they can buy the homemade products on the shelves. Soaps, chili, carob bars, and the honey Achilleas produces himself. I'm a beekeeper and I have a few products. I use a different address for each product, so you can use it in many ways. There are 43 shops listed as using Faircoin in Greece. This may seem small, but it's the largest number of any country in the world. Most of the producers who sell through the co-op are small businesses or self-employed people. Using cryptocurrency can be a way to avoid punishing and impractical national systems. Greece, for example, has no personal allowance for the self-employed, so people are taxed from the very first euro they make. Most producers, like Achilles, also believe in the principles. Fair Co-op is attempting to build a global community that engages with money in a radically different way. They're not interested in speculation, which is why they use a more stable coin. Faircoin is different to all the other cryptocurrencies because it has a group of people who've agreed to use it in a certain way. So all the other cryptocurrencies, thinking firstly of Bitcoin, it's completely open field, so anyone can participate, anyone can mine, anyone can buy and sell. And in Fair Co-op it's the same, but a group of people have said we're going to trade Faircoin at a price that we agree, so it can be more stable, so they only change the price once a month. And we're going to sell Faircoin from a fund at that price, and also guarantee to buy it back at that price. 
And that makes it easier for traders and shopkeepers and things to accept Faircoin because they know they can easily get cash back for it at a rate that's guaranteed. Matthew Slater describes himself as a digital nomad. He's in Athens to help write code for mutual credit and cryptocurrency systems here and to run his workshops that educate people on the nature of money. Athens is the new Berlin. That means that Athens is cheap. People are coming here to do what they want because rent is less and that gives you more freedom. He's part of a growing international community coming to Athens with an interest in alternative currency and trading solutions. It's not just the lifestyle that draws them though. Greece is a pretty interesting place to be looking into the politics of the economy. For the past two years, the Greek people have been living under the conditions of a financial deal that the majority voted against in what has been called the Ochi referendum. This was a vote in 2015 on the terms of repaying the public debt. The people voted no, but the deal, in a slightly different form, was implemented anyway. A week before the vote, Greek banks were forced to close, causing queues at the ATMs and panic on the streets. The then Greek finance minister, Yanis Varoufakis, accused the European creditors of financial terrorism. The tyranny of the European Union came out in full force and really squashed any idea of Greek democracy or Greek self-determination. This is always built into the design of the euro, but it was made very stark how it was all connected to the banking system and how the European Union could agree with the banks that they wouldn't open on Monday morning and how dependent Greece therefore was on foreign powers because foreign powers control the cash point machines. Matt believes alternative systems can help people become less dependent on the state. It's not about trusting an alternative system. The key message of anarchism is that instead of trusting the institutions and the state, we trust each other. When we look at the money system, we've been trusting the banks and all the people holding our pensions and the government and we find out that they're massively abusive. So how do we run a money system based on our trust in each other? Fair Co-op is founded by a bank robber who everybody trusts. Matt is talking about Enrique Turan, who co-founded the Fair Co-op in 2014 after defrauding dozens of banks in his home country of Spain. He's become a kind of folk hero and is sometimes called the Robin Hood of the banks. And so he spent many months opening many accounts, faking details, and then paying from account to account. So every account could see there's money going in, money going out, and then applying for overdrafts. And he got, I think, about half a million euros in overdrafts, and then one day announced that he was never going to pay it back. And then the law got involved, and he spent a bit of time on, in jail and got out on bail, and eventually skipped bail and left the country. Duran used this money to buy a fifth of all Faircoin and then donated all of it to co-found Faircoop. While he naturally keeps his whereabouts under wraps, it's well known that he spends a lot of time in Athens. Matt has been speaking with him about integrating the mutual credit systems he's developing into the Faircoop system. Anybody who's had any interactions with Enrique knows that he's absolutely completely committed and trustworthy to this cause. And so there's a high degree of centralised trust within Fair Co-op because, you know, he holds the keys to everything. He could run off and who knows what. You could say that instead of trusting the banks, people using Faircoin have decided to trust a bank robber. 
After all, Duran donated his wealth and seems to have helped to keep the coin stable, rather than playing the market and benefiting from a price rise. He's also helped to set up several community funds for social projects, including for refugees who might not otherwise have access to bank accounts. The Fair Co-op operates a bit like a club, where a loose group of people worldwide share information and try to stabilize the price. The members clearly trust Duran and each other, but is that enough? Some users of crypto coins aren't so sure, including the Anesis. There's a lot of communities, especially in Exarchia, they're doing so much important work to help economic minorities, the refugees, everyone, right? And if they need a coin to do that, and it's centralized, you know, and it helps with their purpose, this is valuable. It can stay at small scale and some people can hold the keys. At the same time, we should also be careful about doing the science right. And we don't claim, for instance, that something that is centralized is decentralized because we want some of these systems to scale to an environment where they're trustless. We're back at this issue of trust. Bitcoin and other digital currencies are designed to ensure that users don't need faith in any one person or group. All you need is to believe in the system. Faircoin, meanwhile, brings back a certain element of trust in human relationships. We're a different kind of people, I think. Like, they're very motivated by the social part and the political part. I'm also motivated by the political part, but in a different way. Like, I think the way to do politics is through writing code. And this is very, very different. But I do, I do respect a lot, like, the way they see the community and the cooperatives and the way they run it. In other words, different cryptocurrencies exist to meet different needs. It's a matter of moving gradually. Uh, trust is very fluid, so you take your trust out of the mainstream system, which has already proven itself to be absolutely corrupt and rotten to the core, and you start putting your trust and your energy into your friends. The new structures need to have a form of governance, and if you're participating in those structures, it's natural and obvious that you should be participating in governance. A lot of education would need to be done in Greece if the use of cryptocurrency is ever going to reach beyond a few small-scale communities. If you think about paper money and how it works, it's actually quite complicated. So the idea that you, know, you have a, a piece of paper that says something on it and you give it and therefore somehow people are willing to do work for you for that, that's a weird concept, but it's instilled from us from a young age so that's so natural. The same ideas in, in digital currencies need to be instilled in people's minds in a different way. So you need to learn what is a private key, what is a public key, what is an address. How can you have money on your phone without a bank? There could be a lot of potential in Greece. The difficulty of opening a bank account and the restrictions on account holders means there's a need for creative solutions. The solidarity economy is strong here and Faircoin provides a way to trade that manages to be both local and global. Still, all systems are fallible. While Bitcoin's price is skyrocketing, people here understand all too well what happens when a bubble bursts. And while Faircoin tries to solve this issue by providing a more stable coin, users have to put their trust in a group of people who can seem more than a little mysterious. Through their catastrophic debt crisis, Greeks have been given a vivid lesson in the politics of economy. Many feel betrayed by the institutions of the state and the European Union. Today, cryptocurrencies allow individuals to gain a kind of independence from these structures. Whether their use will grow beyond a few small communities depends on the key ingredient, trust. For Making Contact, I'm Nikki Seth-Smith with Alyssa Moxley 
in Athens. We go now to Copenhagen, Denmark, with Jaya Clara Brecki, who does research and speaks on the political economy of blockchain and consensus protocols. Brecki and I spoke in December 2017. She begins the conversation with a brief explanation of how blockchain works. If you imagine um, two people wanting to, you know, it, within a kind of traditional banking system, if I wanted to send five euros or five dollars or whatever from my account to, to someone else's account, the bank would be the authority that would hold that ledger of transactions and would and would hold the balances of account and say this is in fact what's happened. Um, you now have five dollars less in your account and that person has five dollars more. And this is true because we, the bank, have this record and it says it's true. In Bitcoin, Bitcoin is a decentralized currency. Um, so, you know, instead of the bank holding the ledger of transactions, um, the entire network has the ledger of transactions. Um, so every node in the in the network potentially holds all the list of transactions since the very beginning, um, and uh, basically the kind of state of all accounts in the network. So that ledger essentially is what the blockchain is. Um, but what what the blockchain really does, which is interesting, is it allows for that decentralized database to come to an agreement about the state of accounts. Because say I wanted to transfer $5 from my account to someone else's account, and at the same time I tried to transfer those same dollars from my account to a third person's account, you know, which part of the network would register which transaction and how would the network eventually come to an agreement about which one is valid. And that's that's really the kind of consensus protocol, which in Bitcoin is called something called proof of work. Um, there's a lot of new jargon in this field. And proof of work is the consensus protocol that's used in what is called mining. Um, and that's something that probably most people who have engaged with Bitcoin, they've heard that kind of term before. Uh, mining Bitcoin, basically creating new money. But what mining really does, the purpose of mining really is to validate transactions. So the research that I'm doing in my PhD at the moment is really about how to understand these different technologies um, politically and in terms of power. And I just want to kind of highlight the fact that there's a lot of words that's used in this field, in, in the area of, of blockchain, um, that can be confused with political terms, right? When we're talking about, we're talking about decentralization, we're talking about consensus, we're talking about like all these processes that, you know, when it comes to political activism or whatever else, like they mean, ver that they actually mean very different things. So it's easy to kind of assume that like, oh, we have this algorithm that creates, you know, consensus in a decentralized network. That sounds wonderful, right? <laughs> sounds, sounds great. But it's, what I try and do is really understand the very specific type of, consensus that's actually created here. So what are some of the um, the possibilities of blockchain beyond its use as a, as a currency? You know, I read something about how people were talking about how it could cut out middlemen like lawyers to verify yeah, yeah. I mean, certain so, transactions. How might that work? Well, there's, there's lots of different things I'd like to say about that. One of the big things that is happening in the blockchain space, one of the big assumptions is this idea of disintermediation that you can get rid of intermediaries, whether it's lawyers, whether it's the banks, or, you know, whatever else, um, which to me is, you know, massively misleading because you don't get rid of any middlemen, you just replace them with a different set of middlemen and a different set of technology, which for the vast majority of people is equally, if not more um, complex and intransparent than the existing systems that we have. So I just want to say that, I just want to say that I think this intermediation is like hugely misleading in that field. But so the idea with getting rid of lawyers and disintermediating um, lawyers and aspects of the legal system 
is it, it comes from this idea that you know when you write code it executes um, as its state as it's as it's written right whereas when you write law then you never really know how and to what extent people are going to follow that law and how it's going to be interpreted and so on and so forth so there was this idea that you know you can create automated smart contracts using the blockchain where basically you write up certain kind of if then statements um meaning like if certain requirements are met then you know a, a certain amount of cryptocurrency will be released or paid into a specific account for example just as an example and and the idea is that because you deploy that bit of code onto a decentralized database, there is nobody, not even the person that has written the code, that can stop that from running. There's been a lot of interesting developments around that because in the Ethereum network, a, a year after they launched or something, there was um, something called the, the DAO, the Decentralized Autonomous Organization, that was launched, which was basically if you create a cluster of smart contracts... Um, you can essentially have a kind of autonomous organizational structure that exists outside of the sphere of any kind of human influence. It exists, you know, as a set of contractual relations on the blockchain. And so this DAO was set up in order to manage funds that would fund startups that wanted to make use of the Ethereum blockchain. And the idea was to create this kind of decentralized fund instead of relying on like venture capital or, or other kind of funding mechanisms. So the DAO was massively hyped. It got, there was a lot of money that poured into it. So this kind of account on the Ethereum blockchain, you know, hold, held I think some, you know, over sixty million dollars um, worth of cryptocurrency. And then all of a sudden, people started to notice that the account was slowly being emptied, and people started to freak out. So it sparked this whole debate of whether this was a hack or whether it was an exploit. Basically, what happened was um, in response, because this this was such a large part of the Ethereum network, the, the value in the Ethereum network, um, they decided to kind of go back in the blockchain and, and decide that the whole thing was invalidated, that this never actually happened in the history of events. And this is like a huge no-go. Like the blockchain is supposed to be immutable. Um, code was supposed to be law. Um, you know, it was supposed to be beyond human intervention. And all of a sudden it was very clear that actually, you know, the main developers in Ethereum alongside the miners could very easily go back and revert whatever was written in the blockchain. They could very easily go back and change, um, you know, how the accounts and how the code was uh, functioned. Um, and that actually like all these claims around this stuff was never quite true. So there is like, it was an interesting moment um, because it really kind of disproved, you know, all the kind of fundamental claims of, of blockchain. You know, in the fall of 2016, you and a colleague circulated a document um, called the Satoshi Oath. Yeah. Can you explain what that is and how that came about? Well, we named it the Satoshi Oath to, <laughs> a little bit provocatively. But um, so basically, Elias has a he runs a company called B9 Lab, which is an, an online uh, training company for blockchain developers and CTOs and others in the space. And he initially approached me with the idea of writing a Hippocratic Oath for developers, you know, some kind of like ethical framework of things that are important to consider when you're um, developing blockchain systems. The idea with the oath was really to kind of make developers consider more carefully the the user side of things, basically. So like you know, okay, you're supposedly developing a kind of immutable system. What does it mean that's, that it's immutable? What what aspects specifically are a good idea to have as immutable? And 
immutability is to some extent a, a fiction. So what are the conditions for change? What are the conditions for actually changing what's written in the blockchain? A lot of developers, you know, have certain understandings of how the technical systems work and they extrapolate from there. Um, and this is something that I'm working a lot on in my research at the moment too, is to really start getting quite precise about the terminologies, you know, because most of these claims that are associated with blockchain, um, like decentralization, decentralized consensus, immutability, neutrality, um, trustlessness, you know, all this, these kinds of terminology brings with them a whole kind of political imaginary. But once you start looking closer at what's, what's happening in the network, not a single one of them are true. Like not a single one of them is actually true <laughs> for what's going on. Um, and uh, so the Satoshi Oath was really a kind of intervention into that. That's it for this edition of Making Contact. I'm this week's host and producer, Monica Lopez. For more information about this or other programs, visit our website at radioproject.org. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.